Why don't we begin with prayer? We pray, dear Jesus, thank you for bringing us here today. And uh, it is a very cool thing because you were a teacher and a preacher of God's word, and you did it in our world thousands of years ago, and you made sure that it was recorded for us so that we can sit at your feet today and you can teach and preach and explain to us. We ask you to bless us as we listen to you. Send your Holy Spirit to build our faith and to strengthen our motivation to live our Christian lives in this world. We pray in your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, it is fun to watch a master at work. To see somebody who is the best in the world at something do that thing that they're best in the world at. For example, uh, maybe you feel this way if you've ever been to a basketball game and you're watching Steph Curry warm up before the game. He's shooting three-pointers, and every single time, perfect form. Every single time, perfect backspin. Nothing but net, over and over and over again. That's perfect. Uh, maybe you feel this way when you watch a painter or an artist. Have you ever seen a speed painter? Uh, sometimes they do it more with chalk than with paint. But like the artist will get down on the ground or go up to a wall, and in just seconds, that concrete or that brick is transformed into this incredible 3D landscape. And you're just like, this is art. I get it now. <laughs> or maybe it's, maybe it's music. Maybe you feel this way if you watch a world-class piano player, and her hands are just flying over the keys. She's playing an incredibly difficult song. It's a whole symphony of sound, and she just makes it look so easy. But whatever the case may be, it's fun to watch a master at work, to watch somebody who's best in the world at something do that thing that they're the best at, and you just say, wow, this person was born to do this. Jesus was born to teach people about God. I mean, he just was. There, there was never anybody else like him at this, and there never, ever will be again. He could line up Old Testament verses just so swiftly and accurately that even the religious experts were amazed. And he could break down difficult concepts so simply and so cleanly that even the everyday person could easily understand them. He could bring theology to life, showing people how their relationship with God practically affected their relationships with other people and their life in this world. And Jesus was just a master, teacher, and preacher. And it makes sense to us. It's not surprising, I guess, because he's the son of God walking this earth among us. And so as the son of God, he has a perfect understanding of scripture. He also has a perfect understanding of the human heart. Easily the greatest teacher and preacher ever to live. But with all that in our minds, then, it really is interesting as you look at some of Jesus' teaching techniques it's not always what we would expect. And one sort of recurring theme throughout the Gospels is that Jesus liked to teach sometimes by deeply challenging people. By saying things that when you heard it, you'd say, that can't possibly be true, Jesus. And then he would explain to you how it was true, and you'd be thinking of something in the way that you'd never thought of it before. So that's what he's doing in our sermon text today from Luke chapter 6. Jesus is talking, it seems, primarily to his disciples, whom he is about to send out on uh, an outreach mission and then come back to him. He's talking primarily to his disciples, but there's also a bigger crowd of people listening. And here are some of the things that he says. I'm not going to put these words up right away because I'm, I'm picking out a few verses, but 
phrases like these. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, and insult you, and reject your name as evil. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. People are listening to Jesus say, what is he talking about? Why is he listing all of these bad things and describing them as blessings to be celebrated? I don't want to get cursed and mistreated and starve. But then he flips it, and he says, on the other hand, woe to you who are rich, and woe to you who are well-fed. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. And again, we're like, what is Jesus talking about? Why is he taking all of these good things and describing them as curses to be avoided? Should we not want to have a good reputation? Should we not want to be prosperous and healthy? What is Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking from God's perspective. Again, Jesus is sending his disciples out to go on a mission to share his message. And as he does that, it's like a little taste of what they're going to get after he ascends into heaven and they're in charge of spreading the gospel across the world. They are going to experience all kinds of suffering, poverty, hunger, sorrow. They're going to experience all kinds of persecution, hatred, insults, curses, even direct physical attacks. And yet, as all of these bad things are happening to them in this world, they're going to be blessed through all of it. They can actually rejoice through all of it because they are children of God. They're going to have an eternity of rejoicing and celebration in heaven. And meanwhile, here on earth, they're, in part, they're part of this incredible mission of, of pulling more people into God's family. But it is going to come at a cost. In this life, there is going to be suffering for them. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples, if you get hated and persecuted by the world, you're actually in pretty good company. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Jeremiah got thrown into a cistern. Isaiah got sawed in half by the king of Israel. The prophets didn't have a real good time of it here on this earth. And yet spiritually, many things to rejoice about. On the flip side, many of the Jewish leaders at Jesus' time were very prosperous, very well-fed, very well-regarded and popular. Uh, when they talked, people listened. When those Jewish religious leaders came into a room, everybody stood up as a sign of respect. They were probably some of the most influential members of their society. And yet, they had rejected Jesus as their savior because they really kind of wanted to be their own savior by following all of their laws. And so that meant that on the last day, they were going to have nothing left from God. All their earthly wealth, when this world is done, is going to turn to poverty. All their, worth, all their earthly prosperity, when this life is done, was going to turn to hunger. All their earthly laughter was going to turn to tears. And since they had insisted that their flimsy, flawed lives were good enough to connect them to God, well, the results would be that they'd be separated from God forever. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say to his disciples and to us, if everybody in the world absolutely loves you, if you are fabulously popular, you might be doing something wrong. <laughs> because that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So how would you sum 
all of this up. You know, what is Jesus' point? I think in a nutshell, you could simply say it this way. Appearances can be deceiving. Earthly circumstances and how our world looks at things are not necessarily equivalent to the spiritual realities that God sees. Should we give a few examples to flesh this out a little bit? So, it's Sunday morning. And let's say in one part of the city, there lives a man who has made some terrible choices in the past. Those choices include abusing drugs, committing crimes, and utterly failing to support his family. He's made some bad choices and he's had a rough life. But recently, he's come to know the love of Jesus, his Savior. And he's come to understand that what Jesus did for him on that cross was enough to cover over all of his failings and sins. And he's an old man now. He doesn't live in a home right now. And his mind and his body are so addled by all of the drugs that all he can do is just kind of sit there and wobble and smile. But in the back of his church on Sunday morning, he sits there and he wobbles and he smiles for Jesus. Same Sunday, different part of the city, there lives a wealthy billionaire who's president and CEO of one of the world's most important companies. His business has employed millions of people. His technologies have benefited billions of people. He's on the short list of one of the wealthiest people in the world, and on top of that, he is known for his charity and his philanthropy and his plans that one day when he dies, he's going to donate his entire fortune to the poor. He is fabulous, fabulously successful and a really, really good guy. And yet on Sunday morning, he is to be found sleeping comfortably in his king-sized bed. Because living as he does such a good and successful life, I mean, what need could he possibly have for God? So, we know how our world would view these two men. One man's life has been a fantastic success. The other man's life has, has really been a total failure. But from God's perspective, they would be completely switched around, wouldn't they? From God's perspective, that old poor man sitting in the back of church is a fantastic success because what has happened in his life? Against all odds, God has reached into his life and pulled him into his family, and he's now been washed by the forgiveness of his Savior. He's been covered by the blood of Jesus. He gets to go live with God in the perfection of heaven someday. What more successful life could you have than during your years here on earth that you got pulled into God's family forever? And meanwhile, from God's perspective, that billionaire is a total failure. A total failure, because despite everything he's accomplished in life, he has failed to find the one thing that he actually needs, which is forgiveness from his Savior. His earthly life is so successful, he's maybe not thinking much about what happens after he dies, but when he does, he assumes he's a good enough person to go it on his own. And on the last day, he will go it on his own, and it won't be pretty. These two men are going to have very different eternities. You see, appearances can be deceiving. God looks at things very differently than how our world looks at things. I'm going to give you one more example. 
In the Vatican City, at the center of Rome, a man walks out in front of a crowd with great pomp and circumstance and to thunderous applause. 80,000 people in person and millions around the world watching online hang on his every word and they listen as he speaks. And he tells them, he reminds them, that faith in Jesus is not quite good enough to get them into heaven. If they really want to be truly saved, they need to live better lives. Lives of service and charity, and of course, they need to do their utmost to remain in good standing with the church. Meanwhile, in China, a woman sits in the living room of her high-rise apartment next to her neighbor, whom she's invited over for a Bible study. There's no crowd. There's no applause. There's no pomp and circumstance. All there is is a quiet smile on the face of her neighbor, but it grows and it grows as her neighbor realizes for the very first time that despite her flaws and weaknesses, she's a child of God right now. She's been forgiven for everything, and it's not because of anything she's done or has to do. It is entirely by the grace of her Savior, Jesus. She breaks out in a, a huge grin. But, so you've got the man in front of millions of people hanging on his every word, and you've got the one-on-one -on -one woman talking in her small apartment. But which of these two individuals is actually doing God's work? Appearances can be deceiving. So this is why God sent Jesus into our world. It's not just to die on the cross to take away our sins and rise from the dead to give us eternal life, but it's also to teach us and to help us to understand and to help us to look at our world not the way that people look at our world, but to look at our world the way God does. God sent Jesus to help us view ourselves and our own lives the way that God views us and our lives and to realize that through faith in Jesus, regardless of what anybody else is saying about us at a given point in time, we walk through this life as children of the King. And everything we do is filled with eternal meaning and purpose. It's beautiful when you look at your life from God's perspective. And now that we're doing that, we continue with the second part of Jesus' sermon here where he teaches us how do we want to live our lives as children of the king? How do we want to live our lives now that we're looking from God's perspective? And as Jesus gets a little more practical here, again, he talks in a very attention-grabbing way. Everything he says at first sounds completely upside down and backwards. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That sounds totally backwards. This is the opposite, like the kids said. It's the opposite of what our instincts would be. This, this is already a challenging teaching, but now Jesus takes it up another notch, and he says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Again, these words are extreme and attention-grabbing. And as his disciples heard this, as the crowd heard this, they had the same reaction that we do, which is like, this sounds crazy. What can he possibly be talking about? But now that Jesus has our attention, he explains himself. 
And the motivation for everything he's describing here, it actually comes in the very last verse of it all, where Jesus says this, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. So to whom has our Father in heaven been merciful? He's been merciful to us. We heard that so clearly in our second reading. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were on the opposite team, while we were actively opposing him, while we were mocking him and spitting on him and crucifying him and refusing to acknowledge him as our savior, while we were living however we wanted to on this earth with no regard for the eternal consequences, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's not something we might have ever expected him to do. We talked about love and Valentine's Day, and you know, some kinds of love are expected. You're supposed to love your spouse. You're supposed to love your family. You're supposed to love your friends. You're supposed to be nice to the people who are nice to you. As Jesus says, even the unbelieving world does that. But when you love your enemies, when you do good to them, when you lend to them without expecting to get anything back, now you're acting as children of the Most High. Now you're being merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. Now you're starting to live like a God in this world. And when that happens, people notice. Three years ago, maybe you remember this, three years ago there was a man named Botham Jean. And what happened to Botham Jean is that he was killed by an off-duty policewoman named Amber Geiger. Supposedly, she had wandered into his apartment thinking it was her own. Supposedly, it was an accident, according to her. But at any rate, what happened is that Botham Jean was gunned down in his own apartment and killed. And the trial that followed was very highly publicized, and it was very controversial, especially because of the racial issues that were involved. Botham was a black man, and his killer was a white woman. But after the jury deliberated for about five hours, they finally came to their conclusion and they sentenced Amber Geiger to 10 years in prison. Now, you can have your own opinion about whether that sentence was fair or not, and there was a lot of debate about it. But the reason that I bring this up is to point out something that happened at the end of the trial. So after the sentencing was done, Botham's family came up to the microphone and they gave what's called a victim impact statement. This is a common thing in murder trials. It's where the family gets a chance to tell the murderer just how much this impacted their family and they can actually see you know, the damage that they've caused. So you have different family members walking up to the microphone and saying, you've taken our son from us, you've taken the light of my life from us, this is what you've done. And she's sitting there crying in guilt and shame. But then Botham's brother Brant walked up to the microphone and this is what he said. I thought about summarizing it or quoting it, but I'm just going to play his words for you and, and then we'll talk about them. So this is the words of a man speaking to the woman who killed his brother. 
you truly are sorry. I know I can speak for myself. I I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. But I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but... Can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. What you just watched is not normal. This is not how people act when their loved one is killed. And what was so stunning about this was people didn't know what to do with it. It, was, it felt like a punch to the gut for people that watched this. And they said, this isn't fair to let her off the hook. And this isn't fair to forgive somebody. Who does this? Where is this coming from? But we know where it's coming from. Because this whole situation reminds us of a different courtroom, and a different trial, and a different brother who stepped up in our place and actually volunteered to take our sentence for us even when we were his enemy. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now I think that through his testimony in the courtroom this day, I think Brant Jean gave a clearer explanation of who Jesus is than probably a lot of pastors do in an entire Sunday morning of preaching, because it's that impactful, and it's that powerful when you see it. Undeserved love. Undeserved forgiveness. So is God going to give you a chance to stand in front of the whole world and demonstrate your faith in such a public way? I mean, maybe, maybe not. 
But we hear Jesus' words, and, and we look for opportunities to put these kinds of things into practice. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And as we do these things, God uses our lives to preach a sermon that impacts the world far more meaningfully than we may ever realize. And when that happens now, now we're living as children of the King. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus your Savior. Amen.